one of the great things about only having 24 hours to prepare is that you don't really have time to get nervous about what you're doing. <laughs> uh, just a, a little over a week ago, Jessica and I were part of a panel discussion across the street where we were all asked, everybody on the panel was asked how long it takes to prepare a sermon. The past 24 hours reminded me of the right answer to that question. Preparing a sermon takes precisely as long as you have. <laughs> when I was in school here in the early 90s, my preaching professor, Don Demaray, encouraged all of his students to keep a record of everything they preached, keep count of the number of times they'd speak from different books, specific texts, and on different themes. And he said, refer to that list regularly as we would plan messages and themes, series for whatever church you were, you were preaching in. The reason is, the reason for doing that is, just like everybody else, preachers are prone to return too often, too easily, to pet passages and topics. And doing that does not fulfill our calling to deliver to the church the whole counsel of God. I don't have the jowls yet that Don Demaray had, but that's the best impression I can do of him. Uh, keeping track of what you preach makes you aware of and can help you avoid the ruts that certain books and verses and topics can become. And of course, that's not just true for preachers. You know, that's true for all of us in our devotional lives. I mean, I have known people who spend nearly all of their study and devotional time reading on either creation or end times, as though they've forgotten that there's all this in between, you know, the two. Um, we're all liable to dwell too much on just those places that interest us. So it is healthy and it is, it is broadening to push ourselves beyond those. So thank you, Dr. Demeray. For your, I know you're there, not there. Thank you, Dr. Demery, for your, your very good advice. Uh, but I'm not following it today. <laughs> In fact, I'm speaking from a book that I've preached out of more than any other book, from a passage that I've spoken from many times because understanding this text that was read is critically important to any person's ability to live a victorious life following Jesus. Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was his attempt to knock Jesus out of the fight, you might say, in the first round. Now, we may think it's strange when we read that it was the Spirit that led Jesus into that situation, according to verse 1 there, but the reality is Jesus came to earth to do this very thing to do battle with the one John calls the prince of this world for the sake of the very soul of God's creation. So the first thing we need to grasp here is the fact that there exists a very real enemy. We have an enemy, the same enemy that Jesus had. There is an evil power at work in the world who is out to destroy you and me to separate us from God eternally. And if we deny that or we poo-poo that as unimportant, we have already lost the battle. 
Imagine what would happen if President Zelensky simply chose not to believe that the Russian army exists. Ukraine would be overtaken in moments. Same is true of Netanyahu and Hamas. That's what happens to people who deny Satan's reality. Now, most of those people think themselves quite sophisticated. But in reality, they're the walking dead. They're beaten before they even know it. Jesus understood this, and he embraced Satan's reality. So to follow Jesus means to do the same, and to fight against him, to resist him, as Jesus did with all the spiritual tools that God has made available to us. There in the wilderness, Satan hit Jesus with three temptations, all of which the Lord successfully overcame. This, by the way, reminds us that to be tempted is not to sin, okay? To give in to temptation and to do evil is to sin, but to experience temptation is not to sin. We need to keep that straight because the church has often been guilty of assigning sin to those who are merely tempted. Some guilt-obsessed believers put that burden and accusation on themselves, and many others find it easy to put that on other people. Uh, but neither is right. Temptation is not sin. Jesus experienced temptation, a truckload of it, but he did not sin. Seekers through the ages have presented these verses in, in so many good ways. I, uh, it would be presumptuous of me to think that I could add to them. Uh, but the comments on this passage from Dutch Catholic priest Henry Nouwen were years ago inspirational to me. So I want to give credit to where it's due and let you know they provide basically the, the, the outline for what I I want to share. Uh, Nowen wrote on all three of the temptations, but I'll speak today on only the first. Uh, if you download the sermons from our church website, I get a little money, so you could do that. If No, I'm just kidding. You don't... <laughs> Some of you are looking like, is he really saying that? I... It's been my observation that through the years, there have been trendy catchwords that some in the church, in Christian leadership, grab hold of and, and quite frankly, overuse, right? Um, it, it's not that the words and the concepts are, are, are necessarily bad or wrong. Sometimes they are, <laughs> but not usually. Um, usually it's just that their overuse makes them faddish. And then they get annoying, let's be honest. And then people intentionally forget about them, which is, which is often unfortunate. Um, a few examples of the last 25 years or so might include WWJD. What would Jesus do, right? Uh, Purpose-driven, life uh, or prayer of Jabez, uh, emergent church, words like seeker-sensitive, authentic, missional, apostolic, expressions like lean into, Press into, doing life together, love on, stuff like that. You know what I mean. There's more. It's not that those are insignificant concepts, most of them. Uh, but when people wrap their whole lives around them and they come up again and again and again, they wind up as, as just verbal wallpaper in the church. 
Not to mention that most of them not only do not communicate to non-Christians, non-Christians find them rather bizarre. You know? Trendy Christian jargon. That's what they unfortunately become. I saw not long ago a blog post uh, about this, about Christian jargon, okay? And one pastor wrote, tongue-in-cheek, this is what she wrote. She said, after a recent quiet time where I was bathing in prayer, those close to me, God laid it on my heart to lean into being a transformational leader by loving on my blog readers and offering them some anointed ideas from my missional imagination. <laughs> Let me say, if you don't find that funny, bordering on ridiculous, either you take yourself way too seriously or you're not engaged enough with people outside the church. Okay? But the point for today is that Satan's first temptation of Jesus was all about one of those trendy sorts of concepts, which was to be relevant. Relevant. That was a super popular, very trendy, Christian jargon word. You heard it all the time about a decade ago. The, the Free Methodist Church even had a plant in the Carolinas that was called Relevant Point point with an E, church. I mean, oh, brother, you know? When I heard that was going to be the name of the church, I knew it wasn't going to work. But I kept my mouth shut because you just do that sometimes. Um, we see here in Matthew that the temptation of relevance has existed, though, for way longer than a decade, right? The idea that God has to work to be relevant that God's relevance to our culture is tied to what he or his people can do. Even good things. And for other people. That is the temptation. To turn those useless stones that were all around Jesus there in the wilderness. To, to be able to turn them into bread. Something helpful. Not only to Jesus, but to others. And, and even to the animals that were there with him in that dusty barren place, you know, that would have made Jesus relevant to those around him. Do something actually useful. Do something helpful. That will make people see value in him, in us. And so by extension, in God, right? I mean, is that so bad to be relevant like that? Many of us have been in places both nearby and far away, where we have seen hunger and we wish we could offer the hungry more than our prayers or, or maybe some of our money, you know. Walking through city slums or poor country villages where children die of malnutrition and contaminated water, who of us could have withstood the temptation to be able to do what Satan tempted Jesus to do here in this text? I mean, really, isn't part of our call in following Jesus to do just this? To feed the hungry and to heal the broken. Aren't we supposed to be people who make a real practical difference in the lives of other people? This was the temptation that was laid before Jesus. To use his power as the son of God to prove himself relevant to his world. Satan said, 
hey, if you just give people what they want, they will vote for you. No, wait, that is the political application. Sorry. Back up. Satan said to Jesus, give people what they want and they will listen to you. They will hear your message. That's the spiritual application. But Jesus wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't fall into that trap. Now, of course, he did feed and he did heal from time to time. But he held fast to his primary mission, which was to proclaim the word of God. He never made that secondary to any worldly demand for relevance. Which I think, honestly, wound up frustrating his disciples from time to time. Uh, I'm thinking of the end of Luke 4, where just when his healing ministry was taken off, you know, and people were all around him, and the crowds were getting bigger and bigger, and Jesus was getting very popular, he told his disciples, hey, we need to leave here because I have to go preach somewhere else. They're thinking, what? Leave? You know, we're a success. <laughs> I got to go. Sorry. Jesus put it this way to Satan. He said, one does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God's word is all the relevance that's needed. Our increasingly secular world announces more and more loudly, hey, we can take care of ourselves. We do not need God. And in response to that, many Christ followers have given themselves to becoming in some way relevant to the society in which we live, in sincere hope that the lost might see Jesus in their relevance and in their power, with, with truly sincere desires to improve our world. More and more Christ followers, it seems, are aspiring to competence, to personal power, to means of influence, instead of aspiring to faith. But here's the thing that Jesus knew and that we, his followers, have got to learn. Beneath all of both the great needs and the great accomplishments of our world, there runs this current of deep despair. Deep despair. We aspire to efficiency. We aspire to control the circumstances around us. But those will never soothe a society filled with loneliness and isolation and emptiness and depression. We may well feed a world bread, which is good. It's a, it's a fine thing to do, don't hear me wrong. But all the bread in the world will never satisfy the hungry soul. Jesus understood that. The bread cannot become the main thing. In his uh, 1985 novel, Less Than Zero, Brent Ellis describes the moral and the spiritual poverty of the children of the super rich. They had the world at their feet. They had every material thing they could want. But still, they lacked and they longed for love and for purpose. You see, Jesus knew that bread, no matter what its form, bread does not meet the most important needs of the world. Jesus knew that his mission was to be more than just relevant as the world defines it. And so he actually chose to be, from the world's perspective, absolutely irrelevant. Which allowed him to enter the deeper places in persons and offer them bread that lasts. 
And Jesus calls his followers to do the same. To reject the temptation to use our power in order to be seen as relevant by our world. You know, in the, in the conversation on the shore of, of Galilee, you notice that Jesus did not ask Peter, so, how many people take you seriously these days? What are your three and six month goals for your ministry? How much have you accomplished since I saw you last? Print out your stats. I'd like to see your numbers. Jesus simply asked Peter there on the shore three times. Do you love me? That's the question Jesus always asks, isn't it? Do you love me? And if so, will you simply do as I ask you to do? Because you see, in the end, any real good that you and I do in our world is going to come not from our own personal power, not from any presumed relevance, but from our knowing and loving Jesus enough to simply do as he tells us to do. To keep in step with him, no matter what the world does, no matter what the world thinks. And in order to do that, we have to leave our pursuit of relevance and the ways and the praise of this world. We got to leave that behind. Some of you know the story of Henry Nouwen. Uh, in 1985, after teaching for over 20 years at Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard, he took the role of pastor at Daybreak. That is a home for men with developmental and intellectual disabilities. And what he quickly realized was that none of his new parishioners either knew or cared about his credentials, his degrees, his books, his lectures, his travel, his accomplishments. All they cared about was would he love them and would he be there for them? Losing all that had been so identifying to him was a painful, painful process. But now it admits that really it was there at daybreak that I found the heart of following Jesus. That's why Jesus' rejection of the temptation to be relevant was so important. To feed people is fine. It's good even. But in the end, the good cannot be allowed to take the place of the great. And the greatest thing any Christ follower can do for someone else is to love them unconditionally, as Jesus loves. That's what feeds people at the very deepest level. That's the bread for which every soul searches. That's what leads hungry people to Christ the Redeemer and to God the Father, and that is the great, great thing. And we dare not give up the great for the good. We all face the temptation day to day, just as Jesus did, to be relevant. We do. And so to be celebrated by our world, right? But it's to the irrelevance of love that Jesus calls his people. Today's church, broadly speaking, including the church that I serve as pastor, and this faith community here, is full of people who've done good things for Christ. 
pursued good ideas, written good books, lived good lives, accomplished truly good things. But here's the question with which we all have to wrestle. Have we done the good things at the expense of the great thing? The great thing, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Will we, like Jesus, reject the temptation of relevance for the sake of love? God will help us do it. He will, just as he helped Jesus by the power of his spirit. He will not only help us overcome the temptation of relevance, but he will also fill us with love, with his love. He will provide the love we need to love others. But the choice to let him do that, that is ours to make. We have to choose to let him do that. Will we reject the temptation of relevance? Instead of the, the world's applause, will we pursue, Max Lucado calls it, the applause of heaven? I think that's what Jesus wants to know from each one of us today. Jesus, you know how tempting it is, how, how tempted we are at times to leverage our power in order to get things done, even good things done for you, to be seen as effective and efficient and helpful and respectable in the eyes of our world. It is a great temptation, especially as faith falls out of favor in our high-tech, scientifically-minded society. But that is not who you call your people to be. So Holy Spirit, even here and now, would you reveal any place in us where we have given in to the temptation to be relevant to our culture, to seek its glory, to seek its praise? And would you turn us back to what you would have us to be? Help us choose love over relevance so that we might do the great thing of feeding a hungry world what it's truly hungry for, the love of God, the good news of redemption in Christ, and the reality of your kingdom, both here and now, and coming in fullness. We ask you to speak to us today and make us different. In Christ's name we pray.